Can I just point out you just mentioned cannabis right at 420? <laughs> I totally did. <laughs> yeah, I'm also amazing. very high right now. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I swear to God. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Oh, oh. I'll never admit. Oh, oh. I never took a hit. Oh, oh. The charges won't stick. Cause Monday morning I'm a brand new man. Tuesday catch me if you can. Wednesday night. Welcome to The Docket, episode 68. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. And I'm Ian Bushfield. We have a guest. Again. (laughs) Friend of the podcast, friend of the podcast. Good friend of the podcast. Oh, Oh, thank you both. (laughs) Sorry, Peter Sankoff. Yeah, Peter's going to be crying himself to sleep tonight. Um, (laughs) But uh, you're not in town just to talk to us, right? No, I'm back in town, as I mentioned last time I was on the show our group got intervener status in Trinity Western University. I think I was here right around the time there was the whole kerfuffle with Wagner and then the Globe and Mail and Beverly McLaughlin and whatever episode that is. Giving intervener back. status, taking it away. No, not nope, giving it, it not giving, giving it, it, giving it. Then and then suddenly everyone's in. And yeah. Now there's 30 interveners or something like that. <laughs> so the spring court's going to be very full tomorrow. And I might be sitting in the hall watching on my laptop. Yeah, you could have just stayed home and watched the live stream, really, at this point. Because they do often, they'll make an overflow room where you can watch. That's what it sounds like they're doing tomorrow, but there's something for the charity to represent the donors and, you know, fundraising efforts and all that. Absolutely. And it's just fun to be here, right? And you get to come by our uh, Places recording studio. Our, you Now you've been in both of our recording studios, the living room studio, and now at Mike's desk at his office. Well, it's like such poor planning. It's like we do the podcast the day before the hearing, so there isn't really that much news since we talked last time, and the hearing hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I so. mean, Trinity Western University launched a website to advertise their law school just to try to swing the media or something. It's really weird. It's oh. like TWServes.ca or something. I don't know why I'm plugging it, Sir. but it's just, <laughs> yeah. Listeners of the docket will get ten percent off tuition at Trinity Western. Um, Trinity Western serves, so it's it's sort of trying to project like the good the community service aspect. So they have a couple videos out that are just like their students trying to say we're the ones who are suffering here because we can't go to a law school that doesn't exist yet. Right, that is hard hardship hardship. Oh God. Anyway, that's gonna be fun. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to get the debrief after the fact because that's going to be the really. We'll have you on again. Yeah, after then, the decision comes out, maybe that'll be. I just want to have you on a couple more times so that you can be on more times than Peter Sankoff has been on. <laughs> I, I won't say no. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. Uh, I feel like this has been such a long time coming. This making its way to the Supreme Court, so uh, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what happens. And there's so many related things to talk about today because. Uh, well, we have a newly announced Supreme Court judge, quasi nominee. If I oh, you can't see my air quotes, but nominee. Um, and we had the big LGBTQ apology today. So these are two things that have a nexus to the reason that you're in town with Trinity Western. So before we move on to that, mm-hmm. can I talk about something very important? Is it about yourself? Very political <laughs> and very legal, and not about myself at all. Okay, yes, you may. Emily Tamman, what's your favorite uh, Canadian TV show? Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. Um, God, well, I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this very question recently. 
Um, I know that you're raising it because of the uh, excellent, excellent diversion that happened over the past couple of weeks with the Canada Canadian television bracket. Um, as I'm sure you know, uh, Mr. Dress Up was the winner, and I was a big Mr. Dress Up fan myself. It's a show that I watched with regularity, and having a much younger sibling, I also watched it sort of later than the you age. showed up. So I like I remember it quite a bit. I'm not sure that I would have selected it as my favorite Canadian show ever. I was a huge, huge, huge fan of Kids in the Hall. So in terms of a show that was in my kind of formative young teenage, I still quote like Kids in the Hall. And didn't you go to school with a bunch of kids from Degrassi Street? I did. Went to a high school that uh, some Degrassi kids went to. I grew up in downtown Toronto, of course. So um, actually, to be honest, I wasn't a really loyal Degrassi watcher. Um I had kind of a lot of restrictions on my television watching when I was a kid. Like, basically as a teen slash tween, we were only allowed to watch TV one day a week. And we could pre-select it at the beginning of the week. And I remember we'd, like, go through the TV guide and see if there was anything special. So Degrassi, I respect it for what it is. And I went to camp with a lot of Americans who used to watch it a lot in school as, like, um, part of their sex ed and stuff like that. So there's the nostalgia. But, yeah, I think I would pick, of the ones that were there, probably Kids in the Hall. I mean, you've talked about this a lot, Ian, because you had, oh shoot, what's his Justin name? Justin McElroy. Justin McElroy, that guy, who came up with the whole bracket system, uh, I guess an idea from Twitter, right? Yeah, so on our last episode of Politicoast, we sat down with Justin McElroy in our newly revamped studio, thanks to the sweet, sweet Patreon yeah. money. With, I know, you have some new mics like and stuff, right? $100 a month, and so now we have fancy mics, and we can stick those in everyone's faces, and cool. I think it maybe sounds better. We were starting with this same mic. So, yeah, we, had we him. need to get new mics, I feel. Yeah, they're fun. left in the dust. But Up our game. So we had Justin McElroy on whatever our last episode was. I think it was 63. And just basically quizzed him on, why did you do this? And his basic answer is, well, I just like ranking things. I mean, he apparently in the past has ranked uh, Canadian Heritage Minutes and figured out what the best one was. And apparently it's the uh, Jacques Cartier, That's Canada Oh, you know, that's yeah. definitely in my top ten. I I'm partial to Dr. Penfield. I smell burnt toast myself. <laughs> I still crop that one all the time. <laughs> I mean, what really impressed me about that whole exercise was the number of shows I had literally forgotten existed, but that were like part of my childhood completely. It was so awesome. I know. I didn't. I didn't vote in it. I found the voting a bit cumbersome. There's like too many clickings. It wasn't like one of those like electoral reform surveys or whatever. That not was my like, democracy. Not my democracy. Yeah. If it was like that, maybe I could have done it a bit more. Yeah, it didn't work well on my mobile. I had to click through to each individual poll. I think it worked a little better on the desktop, but yeah. but I did definitely like criticize who won and who lost in my head after every <laughs> round. And I'm I was super disappointed that today's special didn't do better than it did. I think it was like eliminated in like the second round or first round or something. Oh. Well the funniest thing he mentioned is that right after in one of the rounds, uh, Gerald Butts, the PMO's chief of or PM's chief of staff, tweeted out support for one show and then it looked like a bot just took over and brought <laughs> this show from behind to a head. And so, like, overnight, he just, like, threw out 2,000 votes that he figured were wrongfully added. And later, he figured out 4,000 votes in that round came from one or two IP addresses. Wow. So there was some, like, nefarious stuff going on in this poll because the stakes matter so much in Canadian politics, apparently. This is how we should do elections. We should have election (laughs) brackets to choose the prime minister. Yeah, BC's doing an electoral reform consultation. Maybe we should throw that idea to the the attorney general. And so, sorry, I don't think you said, like, what 
where were you in terms of your top pick? I... I mean, I know you didn't have to pick a top pick, but I mean, I, mean, how did I didn't you feel? have a huge top pick, and even the whole way through, there were a lot of shows that I'd only vaguely heard of or not really heard of. I really enjoyed Reboot and was glad to see it make a couple rounds in. And okay. I think that was a very innovative 90s show. Just I don't know that show. It was a good show. No, no. Have to go back. It's all yeah. computer nerd stuff. Wow. And they go in video games. That explains Mike's interest in it. <laughs> <laughs> Who yesterday made me watch about what felt like four hours of YouTube videos about old uh, MS-DOS games. Well, seeing King's things, Quest, Prince of Persia, come on. Seeing things like Littlest Hobo, Kids in the Hall, Mr. Dress Up, I'll make it to the end, seemed apt and appropriate. So, like, I don't think you like can complain about dumb. the results. Like, yeah. it it seems sort of okay, but I mean, like, look, today's special: a mannequin that came alive. There was a mouse named Muffy, who was like overly sexualized. A curmudgeonly Muppet security guard named Sam Crenshaw. And his computer made sandwiches. Yeah. It was great. So I was disappointed that that didn't go farther. I was sort of, I wanted Road to Avonlea go farther because I, I went to school with some Road to Avonlea actors and I, I don't know, because I had a moderate tangential personal connection to that show. So of course <laughs> I wanted it to win. And then um, Danger Bay, the, like the most Canadian show there, nothing ever happened. It was like a marine biologist. Oh no, that shouldn't win. I'm so sorry. Camille Lubchuck, who I want to have on the podcast. <laughs> I'm totally with you on all the Marine Land stuff. And basically it was a show about how good Marine Land was. Okay. <laughs> I just realized that. Holy crow, blinders off. Well, Beachcombers, I don't even think, made it past the first round. And I feel like all of BC has to be behind Beachcombers at a time. It's a show about all people in BC are like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so there you go. That was really fun. I just felt like it gave me pure joy. Like, it's rare that I sort of go online and I just feel happy. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things Justin said about the best comment he heard about it was, this is what Twitter was like a few years ago. Uh, before the Nazis. Remember, remember that Twitter? Right, time uh, before the Nazis? Yeah. When you could just talk about trivial TV shows. It was all black and white. You only had 140 <laughs> characters. The good old days. Well, I, I only joined Twitter in 2015, so I'm a little... I've mostly only known it with the Nazis, but anyway, yeah. So before we go on, maybe we should uh, read something that we got to read. Not because we have to, but because we want to and love them. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This series offers practical and procedural guidance for both defense and crown counsel. Anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. <laughs> That only took one take. <laughs> Fraud. <laughs> Fraud. It was one and a half. <laughs> um, so there's other stuff, as you mentioned, that's happening. And what do you think we should lead off with? Well, I think the, the apology that the PM um, gave today uh, is a pretty, significant, uh, uh, it's a pretty significant thing. Do you want to maybe tee this one up, Ian? Sure. I think it was yesterday afternoon, but... Who well, knows, who knows, knows when this recording. goes out, so <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But this had been in the works for a while, and I think was one of the things the liberals might have prompted. They promised so much in the election. Who remembers it anymore? I think <laughs> they're trying to hope we all forget. Yeah. But this was a apology to the LGBTQ plus community for historic wrongs and discriminations that the government had some hand in, whether that was direct criminalization of buggery, indecency, anal intercourse, 
or even just policies within the military, within the civil service that I think the prime minister called it like a witch hunt to get the gays out. So it was a wide ranging apology. And along with it came an announcement of $145 million to go to compensation to those people who had their careers sidelined and it had another and a chunk of change that went to help sort of recognize this discrimination, some reconciliation efforts, and just helping us learn a bit more about how far we've come, I guess, as a country. I mean, mm-hmm. not, not to say discrimination against the community is over, because no. we go to the TWU case tomorrow, yeah. but that we have recognized that these were wrongs committed. Yeah, and I was listening on the CBC yesterday to some discussion about it, so obviously I know it was yesterday. <laughs> but um, And they were talking about actually how, number one, how many of these policies were still, you know, directly or indirectly kind of in effect up until not that long ago, that, that these are not, we're not talking about um, discrimination that had been wholly eliminated, you know, by 1940 by any means. And also just how little a lot of Canadians really understand about this really institutionalized systemic discrimination um, by the state. So I think it, it the, the reconciliation piece, I think, is really important. Yeah, it's something that we talked about on a past podcast, actually, um, when there was some very good uh, journalism about um, the last individual is actually incarcerated uh, because um, he violated some of these very discriminatory uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, uh, laws. Um, and so there are, I mean, I think that there can be sort of, especially when you're coming from a more progressive standpoint, to to sort of underestimate um, how recent these issues were and how devastating um, they were because they ultimately sometimes resulted in incarceration, in separation of um, parents from their kids, in ostracization from communities, and some very severe employment consequences. So I think it's, it's, it was well-deserved. I think that everyone said the right things in Parliament. Um, I think that some people said things in Parliament that contradict things that they have said very recently <laughs> about those communities, uh, Andrew Scheer, uh, in, <laughs> in Parliament. Um, but despite the fact that, you know, um, you can call Andrew Scheer out for very outdated views that he articulated um, only a few short years ago, there was none of that uh, on the floor in the House of Commons. And, and uh, I think that that is a very good thing. Yeah, it's, it is. But I also think, you know, it's important that we recognize this step for what it is and acknowledge its significance, which it is. But also that, you know, unfortunately, um, rights holders, um, minority groups do have to maintain a certain vigilance about um, ensuring that their rights continue to be maintained. Because I know there are still issues where the government has some work to do. One of them, you know, is in relation to another of their many campaign promises that they would end the so-called blood ban, which is the prohibition against uh, blood donation by gay men. Um, This is something that they promised. They came into power, then they kind of flip-flopped on it. And I'm not saying it's the same thing as excluding someone from, you know, an employment opportunity or, you know, asking someone to choose between the person they love and their job or their liberty or, you know. But it's still, I mean, I think it still goes to show that there's still work that needs to be done. But I'm not going to take away from the fact that I think this is an important symbolic and concrete step the government's taken. Well, and they also introduced this bill yesterday to allow people to have their records expunged or even their deceased relatives who had been convicted of any of these things. I guess this was modeled off 
bills used in other jurisdictions. New Zealand, Zealand, I think, came up first. I think the question I sort of had is, as criminal defense lawyer, what does, what's the simple explanation of what an expunging is, just so we're clear? Well, there are various mechanisms to, uh, to sort of remove the stigma of a criminal record. In the past, we called them pardons. Now you have to apply for record suspensions. But there's also clemency and other other issues. And so, I mean, the simplest way that you can look at it is this is a statutory way outside the current framework um, to, to have these convictions removed from someone's record or historical record. Um, what it seems like with this bill is that there isn't going to be the application fee and sort of the other processes. And so there can be more attention given to, to writing these historical wrongs without, I mean, because all of these individuals would be eligible for a pardon or a record suspension and, and could get one. But this is a mechanism to fast track that streamline it. And, and I it's get, something more than a pardon, I think. Like it's, it's or at least it's, that's the way it was being presented by the government. Um, that's right. It's not, it's not, um, it's more of a recognition that you didn't do anything wrong, that you shouldn't have been charged in the first place, rather than sort of a forgiveness for past wrongs. Exactly, yeah, like a pardon, a, pardon. a pardon carries that admission of guilt, like, yes, I did this, but... Yeah, like that you've been convicted and it's not negating your conviction, but rather saying because you've been of good behavior since that time, we're going to basically, as part of your ongoing rehabilitation, by removing it from the record, it opens opportunities that are not open to people with records. This is different. This is sort of essentially saying... You never should have been convicted in the first place. And it's not just a pardon. It's like the record never existed in the first place. I think that it is also a good example that these sort of mechanisms are possible through legislation. And Why do you say that? And there might be other instances that Ralph Goodale wants to look at. Like what? I mean, I can think of two off the top of my head, and that would be pardons for people who uh, were convicted of simple marijuana possession. Uh, over the last number of years, perhaps even convicted since the government announced that they were going to be legalizing marijuana. Can I just point out you just mentioned cannabis rate at 420? <laughs> I totally did. <laughs> yeah, I'm also amazing. very high right now. No, I'm not. I'm not. I swear to God, I haven't smoked any marijuana right now. Um, right now. Right now. Uh, no promises going forward <laughs> in July 2nd of 2018 or whenever it's legal. Right. Um, but I think before. I think that the other thing that this points out is that we Ralph Goodell could maybe also do some work on the current pardon system, parts of which have been declared unconstitutional by courts in BC and here, something we've talked about before. Um, so, you know, this might have been a good good time to address all of those issues and package them up in one sort of omnibus piece of legislation because that's omnibus legislation is fine. But I will say seriously that I think that this is, it's all well and good to apologize for past historic wrongs that you may not have been a part of or that uh, didn't happen under your watch. Um, And this is a good thing. I think that the government should be taking a more proactive look about what's happening now that we're going to need to apologize for later on because this is always something. There's always something that is happening right now that we will have to apologize for later, whether it's slavery or discrimination against, you know, religious groups. Or, or right now I'm thinking about the state, the status of First Nations children. And that's the right. ongoing litigation, multiple uh, rulings by the Human Rights Tribunal that there's discrimination happening in relation to funding and... Um, a real expectation when this government was elected that this would be the end of this kind of protracted litigation and to think that they just keep having to go back to court 
again and again. And, and really, you know, I've been reflecting a lot about this recently because of some reading I've been doing and stuff, but it's just how much the child welfare system for First Nations kids is starting to look a lot like residential schools and that we've had these very public proclamations by the Prime Minister himself about residential schools and the harm that was done there but that in a lot of ways we actually have a very similar situation that's ongoing in our country and that the government has been given many opportunities to address and they say they're working on it and that's fine but as Cindy Blackstock always says um, you know children do not have incremental childhoods and if you wait too long with this idea of incremental rights um, it's another generation lost and so you know this is something that I hope that the government is thinking a lot about. Well the stat that I've heard thrown around and I have no reason to doubt it is there are more First Nations children in care right now than there were at the height of the residential school crisis which just kind of highlights how deep that issue is. Yeah. yeah, so I think we need to be proactive. And the other thing that I will say, because this connects to a justice bill, um, is, and we've talked about this bill in the past, Bill C-39, which is uh, a bill to repeal unconstitutional offenses uh, that have been found to be unconstitutional, except not minimum sentences that have been found to be unconstitutional, because the government is not repealing those, even though the Supreme Court has said they're unconstitutional. Details, but, details. But Bill C-39 has a, a clause that repeals uh, the unconstitutional and discriminatory um, sections of the criminal code that deal with things like uh, anal sex and um, sort of other indecency provisions that were applied discriminatory in, in a discriminatory fashion, fashion and operated that way. Um, this is a bill that uh, even Michael Cooper um, of the Conservative Party um, in his member statement uh, yesterday, which is normally reserved for either talking about good things in your community or criticizing Bill Morneau, like that's what <laughs> member statements are useful for. His member statement was, why hasn't the government moved this bill forward that we support that repeals unconstitutional offenses, including the unconstitutional section that was relied on by the trial judge in the Travis Vader case to inappropriately convict him? Um, I don't know why the government's not moving this forward. It contains an element that is directly related to the apology uh, that was delivered yesterday. It seems like it would have been a good time to actually put some effort to moving it forward. Well, in Bill C-51, the new one, not the yeah. bad old one, that mm-hmm. repeals a bunch of other random laws. I think we talked about it last time. Crime with comics. The crime and... comics, witchcraft, blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Alarming her match. Has cleared committee and is going already to third reading soon. That's right. And then... It seems like it's on track to, you know, clear the Senate before they prorogue or whenever they do. But. So why do you think they're not moving that other one forward? I mean, it's probably less of a priority because in a way it doesn't really change the law. I mean, it just... But if they're committed to cleaning up the law, there's... Yeah. I guess there are a couple things in 51, as you know, that are yeah. a little bit more controversial. and Maybe the Liberals see those as the priority around the sexual assault. And I don't know. It seems like this is a Bill C-39 is a bill that just cleans things up. Um, the, the, I mean, the line that we've been given from the Justice Minister is that they're undertaking a review and an analysis of the criminal code to modernize it and bring it uh, up to date. They've launched a new survey to, to that extent to gauge the public's well, it's called a public consultation, but it's really a public opinion survey. It does a bit of education and asks, what would you think if, in this fact scenario, if we did this, and sort of gauging the public opinion? So it doesn't seem like less of a, con- it seems less of a consultation and more of a, more of a sort of um, governance by popular opinion, Do you maybe? find out what kind of 
justice yeah. reform advocate yeah. you are at the end. Yeah. You're is... a law and order. <laughs> <laughs> Which TV show do you Which have? law and order prosecutor am I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't know why they're not moving it forward. I think they could. It seems like if they're looking to bolster their justice record because they haven't passed very many justice bills right now, um, or over the midway point, um, this might be a good one because I think this is something that everyone can support. Um, I don't know why. Even if people don't support it, like, it is the law already. So it, in the sense that, you know, repealing an unconstitutional law doesn't actually change the law in any way. And it directly relates to the apology. Like, this is a section that people were imprisoned and discriminated against on the basis of this section. Like, it just seems like it would have been a no-brainer. I don't know why it stalled. Maybe the Justice Minister will come on and tell us. Maybe. Probably not. I don't think so. <laughs> um, can we talk about uh, something else that's happening here in Ottawa? Sure. I think we should. We have a new Supreme Court judge. Well, we have a Supreme Court nominee. <gasps> that's true. <laughs> I mean, recently, they've just been rejected left, right, and center. <laughs> exactly. Well, but now there's a new nonpartisan appointment committee that I think... Is there, though? I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I think... Um, I well, think... former Prime Minister Kim Campbell's on it. Yeah, that's so right. So it's yeah, not so partisan because she's not conservative anymore. And Justice Nadal, I mean, come on. Ultimate, that was a blip. That, that was, was a blip, blip, but I'm quite glad he went back to the Federal Court uh, of Appeal where he agreed with you, Emily Tamman. That's right. He, he was, was on your the judge. panel, in my case, uh, for those who don't recall, Tamman versus Canada. Who won that? Uh, Tamman. Uh, Canada. <laughs> Why are you so anti-Canada, um, I will say this. I have a scheduled exam review session for my students on Tuesday. But at the same time that that's happening, law students are invited to um, sit in. Apparently, they invite students from across Canada. I don't know exactly how that works this close to exams, law students. Um, but the Joint Senate and House Committee, which last year they actually convened that committee at the um, University of Ottawa campus... Um, so I had a chance to go and see the the questioning of uh, Malcolm Rowe at the time that he was nominated and soon to be appointed. Um, it's really neat. It's a neat thing for the students to get to sit in on. Um, I think it's... Uh, a rubber stamp committee? The rubber stamp committee. But, you know, it is. I mean, honestly, I had never heard of him before. I had never seen him before. And I've seen very little of him since. So, you know, for a lot of members of the public, it is an opportunity... Um, for the government to parade around their nominee, I think, more than anything else. So they've appointed a woman, uh, a judge of the Alberta Court of Appeal. A judge who, uh, in 2016, this government elevated to the uh, Alberta Court of Appeal. So a known quantity um, that this government at least knows of her since... A rising star. A rising star. Uh, a former law dean, so has a background uh, not only um, is in the judiciary, but also... Are you just stalling so you don't know her name yet? Didn't you say it already? No. Oh, Sheila Martin. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> Sheila with an H. Uh, as Charisma Mathen uh, tweeted out earlier today, got to start reinforcing it's the Sheila with an H on the end. We're going to have to remember that. So I know her name. Um, uh, no, what I was looking for was uh, the thread that uh, my colleague, Professor Vanessa McDonnell, had put out because she said some things about um, her background, but now I can't find it again. I mean, it seems like uh, I haven't heard any um, Nedon-type uh, comments with respect to her. No one's saying anything bad. 
I think that there are some things to sort of look out for that might telegraph sort of what uh, she might bring to the Supreme Court. Um, she's a law professor. She was on the Court of Appeal. She also has been quite outspoken with respect to sexual offenses in, in the criminal court, court, in our courts. And I mean, outspoken in her judgment, um, having very uh, strong words for a judge that she overturned who relied on some sexual assault stereotypes and myths. Um, she was, if you remember the... Judicial Council sort of opened up one of the judge school sort of training seminar conferences to some reporters a couple months ago, and she was, um, Justice uh, Martin was chairing a, a panel on uh, on some sexual assault issues. She was also the tri- or the appeal judge in the Barton case, um, and that's a case involving the murder of uh, an Indigenous woman named Cindy uh, Gladue, um, uh, who Mr. Barton was acquitted at trial. That was sent back for a retrial, and uh, Justice Martin spoke about it's a need to sort of reevaluate how we look at things in, the, in, in sexual assaults in court. Um, so I think that if you're looking for the Supreme Court to maybe uh, take some, be more activist on uh, on new sexual assault laws or new directions in sexual assault. I don't care for the word activist. activist I know. I just get another word. Court, if you could find a different word, but I mean powerful. <laughs> Definitive. Exercise for power. Power. Uh, I mean, it could be something to look out for. And this is a controversial area, and it's an area that if the new Bill C-51 passes, and we're looking at reverse disclosure of sexual assault records, it's going to be issues that are at the Supreme Court, and this seems certainly a judge who is uh, well-versed in those issues. Yeah, a couple of other uh, points about her background now that I found what I was looking for. Um, She was legal counsel on a couple of significant cases, including the residential school settlement and the wrongful conviction of David Milgard. Uh, She's very active in LEAF, the Legal Education and Action Fund, so has, you know, I think um, a background working on feminist causes, and that would be consistent with what you were just saying. Um, apparently she's bilingual, which is um, something that... Apparently Melkin Rose bilingual too, but I don't know if I've ever heard him speak French. I did hear him speak French How was at it? that thing, and it was actually very good. Okay. He actually speaks um, better than the low bar that they've set in terms of how they've articulated Was it your answering French questions in French, yes, or it was, was it a it, statement? No, it was spontaneously okay, answering okay. questions I'll in be, French. I'll be his, less suspicious. His French, definitely, I'm very comfortable with, with the level of his French, and apparently um, Justice Martin has good French too. So there are those... I count myself among them, but there are those who are disappointed not to see an Indigenous judge or a person of color appointed, um, you know, from a government with such, so much rhetoric about diversity. And I think this would have been a great opportunity. Having said that, you know, I don't know exactly who was in the pool and I don't know um, the details. I've heard rumors there are some good candidates, but I don't know. Yeah. So that's, that's going to be something that's going to be disappointing to some people, but it's not to take away at all from the credentials of Justice Martin, who certainly seems to be um, an appropriate appointment from what I can see. I know the one criticism I've seen out there is that being an Alberta Court of Appeal, this means BC no longer has a judge. The sort of balance regionally has well, been, BC has always sort of gotten one of the seats, just right. as a nod, even though there's not a formal requirement for that. So there are two from the West... And There's now two from Alberta. There are two from Alberta now, I see. Okay. Well, you know, that that's fair. That's fair enough. But, I mean, the Chief Justice McLaughlin uh, represented British Columbia for a very long time on that court. Um, but, no, that's, that's, that's fair to say. There's a, certainly a deep pool of talented judges um, in British Columbia as well. 
Uh, and I know when um, Justice Rowe was appointed at that time, there had been some discussion that they wouldn't limit themselves to appointing a judge from the East at all, from Atlantic Canada. Um, and there was a lot of pushback on that because, you know, it's one thing to say two from the West and, well, maybe there should be more diverse. But if they had appointed someone, say, from Ontario, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that would have been problematic. So at least they've kept with the West. But that, that is a fair point. Well, I know this. I saw in an article in the Globe and Mail yesterday before when they were teasing an announcement was coming that this committee had leaked the top three names and the other names were... Uh, Saskatchewan Court of Appeal Justice Georgina Jackson and from BC would have been Justice Mary Ellen Turple Lafon. Oh yeah, she's who she's was former yeah, representative for child and youth and was the one indigenous candidate. But I think Turple Lafond was seen as like the long shot given she didn't have as much judicial experience. But if I'm not mistaken, her name was being bandied about the last time as well when they were saying they might not appoint from the East. I think she's one of the people that was being talked about as a, as a potential. And I mean, to, to your point about BC, um, BC and Alberta aren't the only two provinces in the West. So yeah. <laughs> um, I can see how, how two from Alberta. What are the provinces in the West? Uh, like Alberta, BC, and a couple others. Really? <laughs> oh, Saskatchewan. <laughs> Saskatchewan. Is Manitoba and... Central? Well, well we're in Ontario, Ontario, right? So now yeah. everything is everything west, west, right? Of I guess everything west is west. When like... I'm in Vancouver, everything's out east. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, I've got a question for you about Supreme Court judges, Emily Tamman. Mm-hmm. Do they get their own custom-made robes, or is it altered and hand-me-downed? So I'm happy to be corrected if I'm mistaken, but I believe that they are. They get the the existing robes. They're, the robes are not custom-made. And the reason that, I, that that's my recollection is because, if I'm not mistaken... When my mom was appointed to the Supreme Court, there was an issue because they have some kind of protected heritage status because the mm-hmm. gowns have been around and they obviously are historically significant given the people that have worn them. And um, for those who don't know, my mother is not a tall person. Uh, for those who know me, I can say <laughs> she is shorter than me. Um, and there was an issue because there was a question as to whether the robes could be cut or how, I mean, she would not have been able to walk in the robes uh, at their length. It would have been like a long train? I think, I don't know if they had been Bora Alaskans. And in fact, there was a joke when Justice Charon was appointed to replace my mom that they had just chosen another small Louise to fit the gown. <laughs> so my understanding is that no, um, they do not get custom gowns and that they're modified to suit the person. That's all I ever wanted to know. That's what you wanted to that's know. There you go. That's it right there. There you got your I answer. skimmed through the uh, responses because one of the things Trudeau has done is put up the Q&As of each of the people who've applied. That would have been a fantastic thing to look at the best, before we started. <laughs> I'll tell you what, the best thing so that I saw in there is they were asking her, like, what other extracurriculars have you had outside of law? And she said, like, to pay for her law school, she babysat, was a camp counselor, worked in the fast food industry and in retail sales. So does that matter? Oh my gosh, I feel like she's my soulmate. I did basically those same things. And would you put that on your Supreme Court of Canada application? I mean, I would like to think that I have some extracurriculars outside of law um, that post-date becoming a lawyer. Like, those are like, yeah. I mean, I definitely was a camp counselor for longer than most people would consider appropriate for an adult. Um, But I was still in undergrad and... um, I like to think that I've done some non-law things in my spare time, you know, as a lawyer. <laughs> Mine would be so bad. Be like, 
I once completed Double Dragon video game <laughs> in one sitting. I also Dragon Veil. Vale. <laughs> yeah, I also was able to uh, master every King's Quest MS DOS game <laughs> in one sitting. It would not be good. Yeah, I'll just not talk about my childhood. It was a dark time. <laughs> it was a dark time behind a screen. The other thing I did see her mention, in addition to all of the things you mentioned, Emily, is she was one of the Court of Appeal Justices in Alberta who there was that period after the Carter decision when medical assistance in dying was struck down, but not it hadn't available. Gone to the yeah. Yet. Yeah. Or, oh, oh, no, no, it after, had, but, but there, there was, still there was had the to delay, court, right? right? Yeah. yeah, and I think it was even after Trudeau got the extension because he needed to write time to write a bill, and she authored one of the decisions allowing someone in a rush judgment and basically just reaffirmed the Carter decision, which gave a lot of assisted dying advocates a lot of excitement because it sort of put lie to the government's argument that their more restrictive bill was garbage. We're going to have to do a little more homework on Justice Martin's criminal law record, which Mm -hmm. really is the theme of the Docket podcast. And although I know what you're thinking, aren't you a criminal law professor, Emily Tannen? Don't you? But like, just saying, I haven't taken the time to fully... um, characterize every justice of the Alberta Court of Appeal in terms of how they approach the criminal law. So maybe we'll have one of our good friends from Alberta come and talk to us. I normally like to let other people do that sort of work and then just steal it when they tweet about it and then right. uh, talk about it on here. But the Alberta Court of Appeal is a wacky, wacky place. So <laughs> I'd be very interested to read uh, the decisions that she was part of. Yeah. So we'll, we'll do a little homework and we can come back on that. Um, before we move on, Emily, do you have something that you would like to say? I do have some a few words that I'd like to Just say. Just a few words. Um, re- regarding uh, a fine legal publisher called Iman Publishing. This episode is sponsored by Iman Publishing's Criminal Law Series. This collection features practical texts covering various areas of criminal practice. Where possible, Iman pairs Crown and Defense Counsel to co-author titles, lending balance and comprehensiveness to the series. Um, I now notice that the next part is in italics, and I was about to read it verbatim, but it is actually telling me to reflect on and think about some things. So what I will say is that I've been fortunate enough to receive now two Iman publishing books. And although I can't say that I have read them cover to cover, I can say that um, I, do, I do see that kind of balance that they're, <clears throat> that they're looking for. And in fact, a crown friend of mine in, uh, Mississauga, in, in um, southern Ontario reached out to me and said that she was particularly keen um, to get one of these books for exactly that reason, that it's not just a practitioner's guide um, for defense counsel or for crown. So I think that's a really um, interesting perspective that they're bringing um, with that approach. I think you're right. And I will just like to say mm-hmm. that I want to know what crowns are thinking and what tricks they're going to use <laughs> against me in court. You don't want them having their own secret books? No, I don't want their own secret books. I want to know their secrets. And I hope all defense counsel have been instructed not to reveal our most secret secrets <laughs> in, in, in when, when co-authoring these books. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the series. Just visit emon.ca slash CLS, that's E-M-O-N-D dot C-A slash C-L-S, and enter code DOCKET10 at checkout. There is one other um, Supreme Courty thing that I'd like to talk about. Okay, what is it? Um, a case just uh, got leave to be heard by the Supreme Court. Um, it's a case called Tinker. I hope they don't just tinker. I hope they don't tinker with Tinker. That's awful. 
That is the worst. You obviously just thought of that. I hope you just thought of that. (laughs) I hope that wasn't you were holding that back. I was sitting on that one for a little while. Um, but Tinker is a case from the Ontario Court of Appeal, and the reason why they needed leave is because there wasn't a, a dissent in the Ontario Court of Appeal. It's a unified court, and the Ontario Court of Appeal upheld victim fine surcharges. And we've talked about victim fine surcharges before. These are sort of the add-on um, uh, monetary penalties uh, of $100 per summary conviction charge and $200 for each indictable charge that, um, that convicted people must pay. Um, uh, upon um, being uh, convicted. That's why they're convicted people, I suppose. Yeah, of certain offenses. Yeah. Um, of all offenses. Well, in the criminal in code. In the criminal in code. The- they're automatically added on victim fine surcharges to uh, some provincial offenses as well. But this is sort of a federal stream of revenue that funds some victims programs. And the conservative says, said uh, that they're being waived by judges too much. Judges were waiving those fees and not imposing them. And so they made those fees mandatory. And it's true that they were. I mean, the, it is, the reality is that um, there it was very common for them to be waived and not necessarily on the basis of lengthy submissions or evidence. Um, no, but normally, I mean, in court, I saw them be waived all the time without lengthy submissions, especially when they were impoverished people who were in custody or being sentenced to a long period of custody who would obviously wouldn't be able to pay. And we have a disproportionate number of those types of people. But you're right, they were being waived and the Conservatives saw this as an issue, so they're mandatory now, which means that... We're having people like uh, the individuals in the Tinker case who have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars um, in these mandatory fines, and the judges have no discretion. And so we're, they're left, to, the trial judges are, to impose these fines knowing that not only will the person never be able to pay them, but if they don't pay them, they can be um, apprehended and brought back before the court and they can have other collateral consequences, like not being able to renew their driver's license or not being able to apply for a record suspension or pardon until their fines are paid off. And so some courts were finding uh, ingenious and probably not legal ways to get around those victim fine surcharges. Some judges were just refusing to follow the law, which I've never seen uh, before. Uh, and some judges struck them down, found them unconstitutional. Um, the, the, court, uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal overturned those decisions, found it to be constitutional, found that it didn't violate Section 7 or Section 12, um, but now the Supreme Court's going to hear it. It'll be interesting. There was a period of time in the Ontario Court of Justice here in Ottawa where the court was practically paralyzed because of the mandatory victim fine surcharge. People weren't wanting to enter pleas, and then... I mean, I just remember it was causing so much chaos. And then one or two judges had found it to be unconstitutional, but their decisions are not legally binding on their colleagues. But in the interest, basically, of expediency, a lot of judges were saying, you know, I choose to follow the decision of Justice Pachaco or whoever. But the problem with that being that they didn't actually have an application in front of them. But you're not going to bring the application in every single case. You know, you have a guilty plea for shoplifting $7 worth of, you know, spaghetti from Loblaws, and then what, you're going to challenge the constitutionality of the legislature. So everything was really... Um, or giving like 20 years to pay, or yeah. instead of having the mandatory $100 and $200 victim fines, they were imposing you know, $1 fines because you only pay 30% of any monetary fine if it's imposed. So instead of paying $100, if you sentence someone to a $1 fine, then that means they only pay $0.30. Cents. So Plus the $1, so they'd owe a buck thirty instead of instead of $100. So, I mean, there's like lots of ways like that to get around Which it. Which was I mean, kind of awesome because, ju- I mean, <laughs> legal? judges 
don't usually engage in that kind of civil disobedience <laughs> like so publicly. But I mean, there are sort of very absurd circumstances. I had a, a client who was uh, designated to be a, a dangerous offender and so was sentenced to an indefinite period of incarceration. And the judge still had to impose, I think, a $600 victim fine surcharge on him. But he's going to be in jail forever until you let him out. And so he gave him an indefinite period of time to pay the victim fine surcharge. Um, so and I don't even know that that's proper. No, it's not proper. Because the criminal code specifically says you have to say when it I asked for it quite tongue-in-cheek, and the judge said what I said. I, this goes in that secret oh, defense <laughs> book, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm, like, uh, I'm like Joe Bluth being... Uh, Expo or, or telling magic tricks and being kicked man? out of the uh, the, the lawyer's the yeah the order of magicians. So I'm going to have <laughs> my card revoked. But it's an interesting case that uh, that I think we're going to hear a little bit more of when it goes to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I, I mean, as you describe it, it just screams debtors' prisons in 2017, which is mm-hmm. just absurd. We well, need some discretion, right? Because like you're saying, that minor shoplifting offense, or you know, picking the homeless person up for panhandling or whatever trivial offense you're not going to get a hundred dollars from that person so what's the and there's real consequences to even if even if it doesn't result in a person being jailed because we say that we can't jail people for non-payment you can actually the court of appeal found that it did it did engage the liberty interest because you can be apprehended and brought to court so your liberty can be deprived and what the what the court of appeal in ontario didn't talk about was under um sort of the security of the person, they didn't talk about the other collateral consequences. They just said that, yes, it can have some lasting sort of, you know, mental anguish that can be on a person knowing that they have an unpayable fine, but it didn't talk about the fact that you can't get a pardon if you haven't paid this off and that you can't renew your driver's license and that, you know, um, sometimes it might disqualify you from certain forms of housing or from getting a loan or from doing other things. So I think that there's other avenues that, that might be advanced at the Supreme Court. Well, and given that we don't have debtor's prisons, and it's true that if you, you can't enforce non-payment of a fine with jail if the person legitimately doesn't have the means to pay, it's then why bother imposing it in the first place? I mean, it, it's just, and then all the reasons that Mike just gave, that there are still consequences for a person just because they can't be put in jail. Um and it just seems, I mean, this was this was the Stephen Harper special, though, right? It was like removing discretion at every turn and not having confidence in the judiciary. And I remember what I had, one of the things I had said at the time was, if you think that provincial court judges or superior court judges are improperly waiving the victim fine surcharge, then you should appeal those decisions and go to a court of appeal and have a court of appeal put some parameters and give trial judges the tools that they were obviously lacking um, as for determining when it is and isn't appropriate. You don't just make it mandatory. I mean, that just seemed like a bit of a blunt tool for dealing with what I don't think was really a huge problem in the first place. And here's the political angle to it. Um, The government obviously has seen the inequity in the situation. Um, I'm, I'm sure not swayed by politics, but the liberals say that they viewed things differently and wanted to restore judicial discretion. And there's actually a bill that um, would restore some judicial discretion to the judges. That's still at first reading, and it hasn't advanced any farther than that. And I don't know why that's the case. I also don't see the federal government listed as a party in the litigation at the Supreme Court, and maybe they will be. But I'm wondering that if this is a priority for the government, um, 
why isn't it being advanced and why are they content to maybe leave it for the Supreme Court to decide this? This whole episode has two themes, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada and the Parliament not doing anything. Yeah, and for too long, parliamentarians have abdicated their, uh, you know, important policy and legislative role to the Supreme Court. And then the Conservatives in particular love to then turn around and blame the Supreme Court. But, you know, I think I just solved a bit of a mystery here um, when you said that, Mike, because um, maybe the reason that this hasn't moved forward is because they're waiting for the Supreme Court to find it unconstitutional. And then their Bill C-39, is that what it is? The yes. One, maybe they're waiting because they might want to add, add this sections. provision to <laughs> Bill C-39 once the Supreme... Now, I think what would be more efficient is to just, you know, let both of those bills run their course. And it would be disappointing if they don't intervene in this case. And then it's... What if its constitutionality is upheld? Like, it's just, I mean, they don't want to go to court and argue against the constitutionality of their own legislation. I understand that. But it's not their legislation in that it was a conservative bill that resulted in the um, removal of discretion. And they have a bill. Yeah, if you don't want to do that, then advance your bill. Exactly. And then don't waste the Supreme Court's time. From the political angle, it always feels like there's no, I mean... There's this podcast and all the listeners, obviously, but uh, beyond us, dozens and (laughs) dozens and dozens. What is the constituency for law reform? Like, there's not generally a huge. There's the conservative, tough on crime constituency that has its thing, but the people who just want to see the law make sense and work doesn't have. And it's almost like we need some kind of independent arm's length body that could Hmm. just look at the law and every so often just go, "Hey, maybe fix this. Maybe fix this." What Emily, you've you know, Sounds maybe like do some reform, do it as a commission. Like maybe a commission that commission. could... Ian, we need to have you on the podcast more often. Well, exactly. And I mean, I just, I, I, I do agree with you that there is a bigger constituency for the takeaway discretion and make laws tougher. But I do kind of think, I, I agree with you, it's not, it's certainly not like a vote determinant. It's not something that a government is going to prioritize when their primary preoccupation is re-election. Um, but I Are you actually, saying that Liberals' primary no, occupation is re-election? I, just, I was speaking hypothetically, um, friends, but, but I do think that um, there are a growing number of people that are becoming more engaged in the kind of, like, um, uh, there's an increasing recognition among those who advocate for social justice that criminal law policy is, um, is a... Is a it, problematic for those who are seeking social justice and that it, um, in fact, compounds injustice um, in a lot of different ways. And so I do see, like, more and more people, like, I mean, for example, the old Bill C-51, the really crappy one, um, it was actually really interesting to me how many people mobilized in opposition to Bill C-51, given that it's not necessarily the type of issue um, you know, anti-terror legislation, information sharing, um, you know, electronic monitor that is necessarily a huge preoccupation for large numbers of people. So I have hope. Yeah, I think it'd be a good idea. And especially when you look at the fact that our criminal code needs updating, it needs sort of a systemic overview. As this government, let's give this government, you know, the benefit of the doubt, it takes time to uh, to do that. It might take longer than four or eight years, longer than one election cycle. And it's criminal justice is a very easy issue that can become hyperpolarized and hyperpartisan on a dime. If there's 
a case if there's some uh, event. If you look at sort of Retea Parsons, Amanda Todd, um, that led to Bill uh, C-13 and, and you know, the, the cyberbullying bill that was really about information sharing. If you look at the things that happened on Parliament Hill and terrorism, that led to Bill C-51. So it's something that can be driven by public opinion. It can be driven by sort of current events. And it's nice to have sort of an independent arm's length organization that can bring together all the different perspectives because there are a ton of perspectives, police, crowns, judges, defense, civil society, um, advocates, social policy, health, all of these things need to be brought together and it'd be a good place to do it. And it wasn't that expensive. And I think I said it before, but I would like to see the same thing for tax reform. Also a independent, <laughs> um, no, no more little boutique gifts for your friends to advance your political interests, but actually an overhaul of the Income Tax Act driven by reason and common sense and fairness, tax fairness. For the middle class and those seeking to join working them. Hard to join them. Working hard. Mike. Can I just join the middle class without working hard? Like, <laughs> no. Do I have to work hard? You do. But can I just inherit a large company from my father and run that? And then become finance minister and, become and finance get to minister? decide what kind of laws change around your tax I'm so, It's driving me insane because the questions about Bill Morneau are insane. He can't answer disingenuous questions, but he can't even answer those. And there is like the hyper-partisan conservatives who are going crazy over it. And then there are the most apologist liberals apologizing for things, saying that there's not even an appearance of conflict and it's, they're both so wrong. The porridge is neither <laughs> that hot nor that cold. And just, like, be sensible people. It's pretty painful to watch. It is becoming quite tedious because, I mean, I count myself among those who... I, I don't think Bill Morneau set out... If, if he wanted to make a buck, he had a much better way to make a buck doing what he was doing before than joining the public, uh, public life. But at the same time, the dismissiveness with which they... Uh, or the tone with which they dismiss those who raise at least the perception of a conflict of interest and perceptions when it comes to conflicts of interest are really as important as reality. And that I know for a fact that if they were in opposition and there was a government minister in the Conservative Party that had this type of allegation, I don't think they would be um, so quick to the, well, everybody knows he's a good guy. Like, his integrity is without question. Like, this is the whole point. And when they try to say, you know, it's a distraction, this is the opposition's job, deal with it. And answer the questions. It's answer easy. The questions. It's and easy. ask better questions. Yes. <laughs> All around. Maybe it's better I missed question period today. Then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you not get in? I saw yeah, you were trying to get in. Yeah, I got in. stuck in the hole. Oh. Oh, that's all, too the, bad. all the special Olympians got in, so I can't really feel bad. I saw that on your Twitter. Yeah, you can't. Um, so, Ian, do you think we should have a uh, law reform commission? <laughs> Absolutely. Just like that. There See, we go. You yeah. could just say yes. And that answers the question, and you can just move on. Or, a little more emphatically, absolutely. So I think I was telling you by Twitter, though, that I lived in England for two years, and when I was there, one of the things I worked on was the libel reform campaign there, because their libel laws were garbage up to a couple of years ago when they got a little bit better in England and Wales, but Scotland never adopted the same. But Scotland has a law reform commission, and we were able to get them to put libel on the their agenda. docket, on the agenda, so that they could then look at it and go, oh, we should update these. So you can't sue someone just as soon as they, like, look at you funny. Right. Yeah. But. It's, I, can we please have a law reform commission? It would be the perfect out for this government that says it wants law reform but doesn't want to actually do it. 
I'll be the commissioner. Yeah. I'll be the commissioner. We'll just do it. Take it on. You want Let's to show that you're we'll making nonpartisan, nonpartisan appointments? A Law Reform Commission podcast. The podcast. That's there basically we what we have right that's now. That's perfect. It's called The Docket. Um, well, I think that's what we had to talk about today. Am I wrong? Are there other things you want to say that are really um, pressing? I just important? have to go pick up the children right now because if I don't, I think children's aid will apprehend them because the daycare is closing soon. Yes, that is correct. Uh, Ian, thank you very much for joining us again. Thank you both for having me again. Good luck um, at the Supreme Court. We'll be following with great interest, and we'll look forward to chatting with you about it again. Oh, wait, before we go, how can people find you, Ian, and where can they subscribe to your uh, podcast, and how can they give you money instead of give us money? <laughs> yeah, I'm on Twitter at iBushfield, and the podcast is Politicoast for all the BC politics and whatever else we stumble across, like Canadian TV brackets, <laughs> and that's on all of the podcast places and Twitter at Politicoast Pod and patreon.com slash politicoast. Perfect. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Thank you you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Uh-Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman. And you can follow me on Twitter at M Spratt. Thanks for listening.